This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. We have another co-host. We're adding them in droves, and this fellow is a superstar. He's Nicholas Redfern. He's written lots of books on the paranormal. He's been a lecturer. You've heard him on many radio shows, not just the Paracast. He's been there, and he knows an awful lot. Nicholas, congratulations. Oh, well, thanks, Gene. I appreciate the offer, and uh, you know, I'm looking forward to being on the show and uh, getting some good conversations and discussions going. Now, what attracted you at first to explore the contactee movement, and this frames the preamble for the discussion, which we'll get to in a moment. Well, personally, I've always had an interest in the contactee movements. When I was a kid and first got into UFOs, some of the the earliest UFO books I read were people like Van Tassel, Adamski, Daniel Fry, those sorts of people. And I think, you know, when when you're a kid, sort of early teens or, you know, even before your teens, Everything's kind of a little bit black and white. You know, I, I sort of read these stories and, wow, you know, these people have really met aliens. And then, of course, as you get a bit older, you begin to think, hang on, you know, there's a few problems with these stories. And for a few years, I discarded them. But then later on, I began to realize that, in my view at least, one of the problems was a lot of people were viewing the contact team movement and the people in a very black and white scenario in the sense that these people had either met aliens from Venus or they were lying there was no sort of middle ground but the more I dug into it and this is one of the sort of areas I dig into in the book as well is the idea that maybe there are other theories to explain the contactee movement and I found a whole range of uh, potential theories and ideas that might explain some of these experiences beyond the literal explanations and I also found that speaking at conferences, a lot of people who are new to the subject, say the last 10, 15 years, really didn't know a great deal about the contactees. They just thought, you know, oh, they were this bunch of old guys from 50 years ago who hoaxed a bunch of stories about meeting aliens in the desert. And so I thought, well, you know, I've got all this new material that suggests these other ideas and theories, such as freedom of information files from the FBI, and hundreds and hundreds of pages on the contactees. Why not couple that with the fact that, you know, the, the audience today sort of not really up to par and up to speed on what went on back in those days with the contactees and sort of present it for a whole new audience, you know, not not just going over old ground, but trying to understand and rationalize actually what went on. Now, over the years, it looked like on the surface, and there's lots below the surface, that the contactee movement morphed into the abduction scenario. Yeah, this is one of the interesting things that I find about the UFO subject, how it seems to be forever changing and staying literally like one or two steps ahead of us. 
for example, although there are people today who, you know, might be in their 60s and 70s and said they had abduction experiences when they were children, which would have predated, you know, the, the contactee movement, in terms of what was actually published at the time, we're talking sort of late 40s through the early 60s, pretty much up until the time of the Betty and Barney Hill case. There really wasn't too much spoken about classic abductions with today's greys. It is almost the case, or it seems to be the case, that you know the contactee encounters began late 40s onwards, and then suddenly something happened around about 1960, 61, 62, where they weren't replaced, shall we say, by the greys, but they were certainly eclipsed by these stories that began to surface and which dominated ufology in the 70s and the 80s. And the Space Brothers and contactees were seen as more of like a whimsical, bygone thing, you know, from several decades earlier. So it, it is kind of intriguing and there are all sorts of theories, you know, we can get into as to how and why the whole contactee movement, if you like, I won't say went out of date, but was just eclipsed massively. Well, looking at the abduction scenario, I think one difference, key difference between the old contactees is that a George Adamski or a Truman Bethram, any one of these people, they'd meet someone physically. Remember, I met this person. He's from Mars. He's from Venus, whatever. But the abduction scenario is kind of muddy because sometimes they do remember things. Sometimes there's missing time. And sometimes they have to recall this under hypnosis. And as you know, there's a big ground swirl of controversy over the use of hypnosis for investigating abductions. You're aware, of course, of the case involving Emma Woods, a woman from New Zealand who was subjected to telephone-based hypnosis by Dr. David Jacobs, who lives in the Philadelphia area. Now, the question, of course, that we've been debating on the Powercast forums in a recent roundtable on the show is whether hypnotic regression has any value in determining what really happened to anyone. What's your feeling about this? My view is that one of the important things to remember with hypnotic regression is that the mind is rendered into, to a degree, an altered state. But when anybody's mind is put into an altered state, whether it's through hypnosis, drugs, whatever, you're not in your regular state of mind, obviously. Now, in saying that, I don't want people to think that I'm a skeptic of the idea that abductions are occurring. I think, in some form, there is a genuine alien abduction phenomenon. Now, whether it actually involves literal flesh and blood physical aliens, you know, kidnapping people for their DNA, eggs, sperm, etc., in the conventional scenario that we all know and understand, or, you know, could it be like a modern-day incarnation of something like incubi and succubi encounters, which I think, you know, there are a lot of interesting parallels there. In other words, the important thing to remember is that when you're dealing with hypnosis, it may well bring out memories but on the other hand, if those memories are being brought out and discussed when the witness it's their, themselves is in an altered state of mind in the first place, you know, it's kind of along the lines of, well, how accurate is the information? Now, again, I wouldn't want people to think that I believe these people are lying. I don't. But, you know, it is incredibly difficult to rationalize how you can take testimony at literal face value when the person is relating it under hypnosis, not, you know, sitting opposite us in a totally open and normal frame of mind. I think that's one of the important things, regardless of how accurate hypnosis may or may not be. The fact is that the person is in an altered state. Well, then that raises the bigger question here. Should we even be using hypnosis? Yeah. 
to unearth information about abductions because the person's in an altered state, they're suggestible, they could mm-hmm. receive, even if they're unconscious, clues from the hypnotist to orient their stories to what the hypnotist expects. How do we know? Well, I mean, these are all good, valid points. I mean, I'll give you a classic example. I once I sat in on three abduction interviews. This is probably going back, probably about 2002, 2003. And this actually was in a hypnotic situation. Uh, I was actually here in Dallas, Texas, where I live. And a person I won't name was doing some research and actually had done training course in hypnosis. They had three women in the room who claimed abduction experiences. I think it was the second woman, the interviewer, the, the hypnotist, if you like, put the woman under. And the first question was, can you tell me what the aliens look like? words to that effect. Now, you know, by bringing up the very notion that this was an alien encounter and involved aliens, that is massively leading the witness. Now, I don't say that the the person doing the interview did it deliberately. I don't think he did. But this is one of the things that people who aren't trained properly in hypnosis tragically forget and massively forget is the issue of leading the witness. You know, what color were their eyes? Well, who's to say they had eyes? You know, well, the thing is, well, you would say, I guess, Nick, that what did you see? That's what what did it do. look like to you? Yeah. And was, you'd ask questions that were very basic and let them fill in the details. As soon as you fill in the details, they're just going to go with a story. Well, that's the unfortunate thing, is that so many people, I think they're good-intentioned, but they get very excited about, wow, you know, here's a great new abduction story. Let's see what the person has to say. And more importantly, if they've been deeply involved in, you know, dozens of previous abduction stories, to them, it's just another abduction case to add to the list. And so I think there, there is this unconscious tendency, uh, subconscious tendency, if you like, to to unconsciously fill in the gaps for the um, for the interviewee. I mean, I've seen this happen several times. You know, for example, in this same particular interview, I can remember another question related to how the woman was taken from her bedroom to where the abduction occurred. And the interviewer said, how were you taken to the craft or to the UFO? Well, again, that instills in the mind of the person being hypnotized that they were taken on board a UFO or a craft. You know, the, the person should have asked the question, can you describe to me the nature of where the experience occurred and leave out all references to UFOs and craft? And But so many don't do that, and they don't see a problem in it either, unfortunately. It's something we're going to explore more in a few moments, especially also the history of the original contactees, and we'll be joined by someone who knew many of the contactees. He actually met them and talk to them, and has some interesting memories to present. Nick Redfern joins us as co-host. We'll be meeting Jim Mosley on the other side of the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain 
name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap, where we host many great contests, or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. As you know, the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers, for listeners of the PowerCast, Audio is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One book to consider, for example, is Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up by Timothy Good. Timothy Good, as you know, has been a guest on the PowerCast. For this book or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. Our co-host, Nick Redfern. We're joined by Jim Mosley. We're talking about Nick's book, Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, and it's published by New Page. So you can get a copy or you'll see a link at the PowerCast site. And if you click on that site, by the way, and click on that link, it takes you to Amazon, so we get two or three cents per copy that you buy. That's all it's worth. Believe me, Amazon is a lot cheaper than they used to be. Jim, now, yes. you started real early in the UFO field. Who was the first UFO contactee you met? Well, I was just thinking about that while I was waiting to uh, start the program. I uh, first went out to uh, Southern California in 1953, and that was part of a trip around the country. I made uh, interviewing uh, people that had been mentioned in the early saucer books as having seen something and interviewing scientists and uh, other people that might have something important to say on the subject. But uh, to answer your question, as far as I can remember, I don't think I met any of the contactees on that first trip except George Adamski, and I made a point of going to uh, interview him. I met uh, the rest of the contactees a few years later as I started going out to some of the conventions uh, out on Giant Rock that were run by uh, George Van Tassel. And so that's how I finally met them. I never got to know any of them very well, but uh, since everyone else but me that knew them at all seems to have passed on out of this mortal coil, I have now, uh, by uh, dint of having survived this long, become an expert on the contactees. So that answers your question. Jim, now, at the time, in the early days of the UFO field, we all felt the contactees were just kooks. They were the crazies. What was your personal reaction when meeting some of these people and talking to them? Well, uh, how can I put it? I never thought they were crazy. I did think they were making it up in all probability, and I still do. I think Nick in his book uh, 
states uh, correctly that some of them, or maybe all of them, had some core experience that they actually uh, did uh, have, uh, and then they uh, added to that and built on it and took advantage of it. That is possible, but in general, the more conservative people in the UFO field, of, of whom I was certainly one, did not take them seriously and did not uh, believe them at that time and uh, that's pretty much how I felt. Was there a point in time where you began to feel you know what maybe they've got something going on here maybe at the core of all this there's something real that happened? To them yes well as I say Nick mentions that in his book and I think he makes a very good point. Uh, it's no use to just uh, dismiss every last word they say out of hand and, and just uh, believe that there's nothing to it. At the very least, I think they had a, a philosophy that they were trying to get across and that they were sincere about. And uh, they used these uh, underhanded means, perhaps, uh, I'm thinking particularly of George Adansky, in order to uh, get across, uh, you might say, philosophical beliefs that they felt they were very uh, serious about. But uh, they realized uh, correctly that if they just said, well, I'm George Adamski and I believe so-and-so, who would care? But if he's had some uh, exciting, unique experience with the space people, and if they told him the same thing that he already believed anyhow, why then that's something people would enjoy reading about and uh, would take him seriously. Isn't it also true that Adamski actually wrote a book some years before his flying saucers have landed, where he actually put the same beliefs in a different format? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of that book. It's uh, probably... Um, Pioneers from Space. Yeah, Pioneers of Space. Yeah. However, that didn't correspond to his first book, which was Flying Saucers of Landed. I think it corresponded more closely uh, with uh, Inside the Spaceships, which was his second book. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no doubt that, that Adamski recycled the things, but as to the question of whether he was telling the truth or not, I had uh, one bit of evidence that I don't have anymore actually after all these years but in writing to a friend of his named Gerald Baker who was a close co-worker of Adamski's in the early days and I actually got a uh, photocopy of, of this letter from Baker who I got to know fairly well in later years and it says there the one thing I remember very clearly and the most important thing that uh, uh, it says there is sometimes you have to use the back door to get the truth across and that was the exact words that I saw Adamski uh, had written to this friend of his so I, I think that may be a very uh, concise true statement of how Adamski felt now Nick maybe you can answer this in your investigation of these old-time contactees or pioneer contactees did you find any smoking guns to expose them as having just made up everything out of whole cloth well you know I think you know I, I broadly agree with with Jim where I do think some of them had core experiences and I think one of the biggest problems with the contactee movement is that people 
look at the experiences of the people literally in the sense that they either met long-haired aliens from Venus or they made it all up. I think the truth is actually more subtle. So, you know, in terms of like Jim said, that they had philosophies that they actually believed. And so in some respects, they felt doing what was necessary to promote those philosophies was okay, you know, if it sort of, quote, spread the cosmic word. Now, in that respect, sort of to answer your question, I think, yes, there are a number of smoking guns that, that do present some of the contactees in a bad light, but does that mean that something didn't happen to them, or does it mean that they expanded upon something for their own motivations, which they perceived as being worthwhile? Now, I'll give you an example. You know, Jim talked about Adamski, you know, quote, using the back door to get a message across. Well, I got hold of George Adamski's FBI file, which actually includes a section where the FBI had got someone to analyze some of Adamski's photographs. And they did quite a, an extensive study of it and, and basically came back saying, you know, these photographs are bogus. So, you know, you could argue that's a smoking gun that drastically affects Adamski's credibility. But again, the big issue is, did he fake everything or did he create the photographs as a means to further bolster the message he was trying to portray? So in other words, the answer as to whether or not there are smoking guns to prove these people were fakes isn't as clear as it seems to be. It's more of like a, a gray area, shall we say. No pun intended. <laughs> you know, I, I'd add something to it. Uh, and again, you may know more than I do if you have these FBI files, Nick. But uh, I am quite sure from several things that I've read uh, that the FBI and other government agencies and uh, conservative people in general were concerned about the uh, contactees because they were talking about peace and love and uh, things like that, which sound all right, but if you are right-wing enough, that sounds uh, communistic. Yeah. And uh, there was a feeling wherever uh, with the establishment uh, of this country, I think, that these people were influenced by or spreading uh, communist or pro-communist propaganda, and that was something that was uh, taken very seriously and uh, in a negative way. Uh, am I right, Nick? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, I'll give you an example. Again, just to pull on um, Adamski's FBI file, there's actually a whole section in that file where the FBI investigated where Adamski had given a lecture and somebody had asked him, what sort of government do you think the aliens have? And he said, they're probably are communists. And he said something almost words to the effect of, that's the way of the future. And of course, you know, this is 1953 America, McCarthyism, Reds under the beds, etc. And it was actually from that point onwards that the FBI, if you read their file, it's clear that before that time he was seen as a bit of like a, a cultist type character who could influence people. After he started making these claims about communism and going on the lecture circuit and selling thousands and thousands of books, the FBI actually declared him afterwards a security matter. That's the actually wording they used. Now, What's interesting is that George Van Tassel, I got hold of his FBI file, which is actually no less than 398 pages long. And that file talks about how the FBI were concerned about Van Tassel's lectures, where he was talking about the U.S. economy and how perhaps, you know, it could be bettered, etc. 
and the FBI actually made note in one of the documents to try and find out who it was that was funding Van Tassel's newsletters and publications. And if you read between the lines, it's quite clear they were worried that you know, some sort of foreign power was using these people unwittingly, as Jim said, to spread communism. And Truman Betterham made similar claims. And Orfeo Angelucci, one of the earlier contactees as well, I mentioned in the book, actually said that when he was touring on the East Coast at one point, he was approached by what he described as, quote, a mysterious group who wanted to uh, have him sort of slant his lectures, quote, along the party line. So there definitely were people who were trying to I guess, influence the, the contactees to spread communism. Now, whether it was the Russians, you know, some sort of left-wing group in the U.S., or, you know, somebody else entirely we don't know about, I'm not sure. But this, I think, was one of the foremost reasons why the FBI was watching the contactees. I think, in some respect, the UFO encounter angle was secondary. The FBI were concerned about the effect that the contactees would have on the mindset of the U.S. population. Kind of like, you know, the whole flower power thing in the 60s, which was perceived by the government as being a threat because it, it was a threat to the old order. And, you know, the, quote, the old men in suits didn't want the old order changing. And I think... Well, Nick, do you think uh, that there were groups or individuals that were actually putting communistic thoughts or statements into the minds of, of, of these uh, contactees? And if so, what groups would they have been? Uh, do you know anything about that? Well, you know, I mean, if you read the FBI's files, the, the FBI were actually sure that this was going on. You know, that they were highly concerned about the fact that, you know, George Adamski's first book, Flying Sources Landed, sold thousands and thousands of copies, literally tens of thousands. And as I said, there's a whole section in his file about um, his views on communism and how he felt the aliens were communists. Now, I will admit, however, that who was doing this or who might have been trying to encourage or Theo Angelucci or Adamski or Bertram to kind of mutate their lectures and conferences to come around to more of like a left-wing type thinking, I'll be the first to admit that the files don't tell us who, who that is, what the group might have been, etc., etc. But, you know, the, the fact that the FBI were hot on the trail of it seems to me, it, it would suggest that somewhere behind closed doors, a conversation had gone on between, you know, official bodies saying, hey, this looks like what's going on. Let's try and get to the bottom of it. Now, Angelucci himself called these people a mysterious group. You know, it wasn't like he was talking about the American Communist Party or something like that. It seems almost, you know, like infiltrators. That's, you know, I speculate in the book, could it have been the Russians, you know, sort of deep cover agents? I mean, you know, that kind of gets into more X-Files territory until you realize it was an area the FBI was following. So. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. 
The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Red Fern is our co-host. He's author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. We have Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, and we'll hear more about Saucer Smear shortly. Jim, you had a comment. This is not at all well-known and probably at this point in time of, of very little importance, but I lived in the New York City area, and I, I was a member of CSI, which was one of the very first uh, civilian saucer research groups uh, for, for flying saucers. This would be 1953 or 1954. And there was a fellow, a very nice guy, that I got to know quite well. His name was Charles Sandwich. And he had been in World War II, I believe, in the OSI, which was the predecessor of the CIA. And he told me that he had been asked uh, by whatever the people in the government to join the CSI. Uh, he was interested, actually, in saucers anyway. It wasn't just all a put-on. It was a subject that he wanted to uh, learn more about. But he was asked to keep an eye out and an ear open uh, to anything uh, that might indicate uh, outside influences of, of communism. Not that there had ever been such statements from CSI. CSI was a research group, not a, a contactee group. But, I should uh, first point out, Jim, before people get confused, we have TV shows today called CSI, including a CSI in New York, where that's a crime scene investigation. The CSI of the 1950s was a UFO research organization, a very good one, by the way. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting, too. You're talking about possible confusion. There was CSI of New York, and at just about the same time, there was a CSI, probably with the initial standing for the same words, and that was in Southern California, uh, composed of some engineers. And I don't remember the details, but there were two uh, groups with uh, apparently a uh, identical name and at the same time. You know, Jim, when you talk about government intervention in possibly these contexts, of course, we were talking about Russian intervention. But do you remember the lunch, the strange lunch meeting we had with Howard Menger back in the 1960s? And remember, Howard Menger was not a friend of your publication. You know, you kind of put him in the same category as Adamski, just one of those kooks. But then we had this crazy lunch. Do you recall this? No, we'll go on. Um, this is where Menger is saying that perhaps, and we have this lunch place we get together across from your offices in New York City. Kind of a diner oh, yes, kind of place. I, I remember the place you're talking about. Right, yeah. and then we met Menger there at one time, and he was telling us that he thought he was part of a government experiment, our government. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but... Uh, Everybody does it, believe me, it's not a problem. <laughs> But following up from there, when Long John Neville finally got his television show, 
which was sometime, I suppose, in the late 50s. And he only had it for one season because apparently it didn't go over very well. But he had Howard Menger on the TV show because Howard had been on the radio show many, many times, and he was probably, uh, let's say, a favorite son or a sacred cow of uh, Long John's. And he got him on the TV show, which I did not hear, and he started saying the same kind of thing that you're talking about, that it was not interplanetary, but he was set up by some government agency. And Long John <laughs> never forgave him for that, and I think uh, I wish I could have heard the show or been there when it was uh, taped, because that must have been a, uh, a very amusing scene. I'm sure John was ready to strangle a manger with his bare hands. John had this technique of the slow burn. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you probably don't know, Long John Nebel was the pioneer of the all-night talk radio format with an emphasis on the paranormal. Before there was an Art Bell, George Norrie, any of us, there was Long John Nebel. And I actually saw the TV show in question. Okay, and I recall the slow burn. You know, he didn't say on the air because he was a professional what he really felt. If he did, there would be words that would be uttered that you didn't want to hear on TV, especially in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, well, it was also interesting uh, that uh, Menger was always very friendly with me and and this meeting that we had at that uh, restaurant must have been sometime around the time of the 1967 convention that I held when uh, Menger was one of the main uh, speakers and from that point on uh, he and I became good friends I had let him live uh, free at a an apartment that I had in New York for a period of a week or two that he was in New York so that must have started it off on the on, on the right foot and, and after that we kept in touch and I met him several other times and uh, he was just as nice as he could be in spite of the fact that he knew perfectly well that I didn't believe his story and I had knocked him in print several times in, in uh, Saucer News as it was called then and I always wondered was he a very tolerant fellow to that degree or, or what was it but uh, we remained in touch for the rest of the, his life and uh, I'm no longer in touch with his widow but uh, that was a long time ago and uh, a very unusual friendship. What was your take about what he was saying? Was that some kind of spin control, knowing that you didn't believe in what he said, so he might as well give you a version that would be more in line with what you wanted to hear? Well, no. I mean, if he said the same thing on Long John's uh, television show that you say he said to me at that restaurant, I guess it was a new angle that he had uh, to present to everybody, not just uh, to me. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I would sort of follow up on that is that if you look into the, the contactee movement, you do find a number of these people who did have, I guess, quote, intriguing links with the official world. I mean, George Van Tassel, for example, who was responsible for the huge conferences out of Giant Rock, which, you know, at their height were attracting literally thousands of people in the audiences. George Van Tassel used to work for Hughes Aircraft under Howard Hughes. And Howard Hughes was somebody, obviously, who worked and moved in very high circles. And uh, there's actually been books written about his links to the CIA. And um, Howard Hughes actually good friends with George Van Tassel and his wife. Not only that, when I got hold of Van Tassel's FBI file, it actually talked about how in the 1940s, when Van Tassel was working at Hughes Aircraft, 
he'd actually helped the FBI on a number of espionage cases where foreign agents were trying to infiltrate Hughes Aircraft to find out, you know, the latest information on American aircraft designs. And there was an FBI agent named Walter Bott who who worked on these investigations, and, and Van Tassel had actually helped him on a number of these cases. So in other words, even before their UFO experiences, they were moving in official circles. And I know that when I was doing research for the for the contactees book, I found that um, Leonard Stringfield, an early researcher who in later life focused on crashed UFO stories, he'd met some of the contactees in the 50s and said there was talk about some of these people being plants and things like that. And, and there was also this long-standing rumor, I'm sure you know about, where George Adamski was supposed to have some sort of diplomatic passport. Now, whether or not that was Adamski, you know, trying to massage his own ego or not, I don't know. But, you know, from what we know from other contactees, they did move in these sort of interesting official Well, I, I, I think that George Adamski, didn't he claim that he had had a, a meeting with the Pope? And he had some uh, means of uh, trying to prove that. He had some uh, medallion or whatever that he claimed the Pope had given him, but then it turned out that you could buy this <laughs> medallion in, in, anywhere in, in, in the Vatican area, and uh, that it didn't prove that he met the Pope at all. Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is all, you know, part of the, the spin that a lot of the contactees put on their stories. And uh, but I think, again, a lot of people just, people don't realize the deep level to which it, it kind of goes. You know, it goes beyond hoaxing. It almost goes to the point of doing what needs to be done to get what they saw as a viable message across. And, you know, I think that's been missed or misinterpreted at least. The one thing I always worried about here, guys, is whether or not some of these contactees were government plants. In other words, trying to either prepare us or just to test the waters and see how would people react if the aliens came to visit us. And this all came in the wake of the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. Michael Rennie plays this character Kletu who comes to Earth to warn us about our nuclear folly. We're destroying the planet. If you don't straighten out, we'll destroy you. So the same message was being conveyed was the government doing some sort of test. Who wants to take well, actually, that? Actually, Gene, I, I don't think that could be right. I mean, I didn't know any of the contactees all that well, but they didn't seem to be in league with any uh, government plan to... Uh, put out a certain kind of propaganda or anything like that. Nick? Yeah, I would, I, would, I would kind of agree with that. I think, you know, that the, I think the contactees, some of them were being used by extremist groups, like left-wing groups, ultra-left-wing groups, I mean, in, or, or were for a while at least. And I think there's no, or there's no doubt that some of them did have links with the official world, like Van Tassel. Now, whether or not they were being used. I think if they were being used as part of some message, I think it's probably unwittingly. I think if you look at some of them, they weren't the most reliable of people to where they might spill the beans, so to speak, you know, because it would be an even greater story. 
you know, if they Yeah, want I think that's some, a very good point. I don't think anyone, <laughs> any official agency would trust these people to no. follow instructions and, and not blow but no, whether or not they may have been unwittingly used, I think that's a possibility that I talk about in the book was the case of Orfeo Angelucci. Now, Angelucci had these, again, classic contactee experiences where, you know, he said his life was pretty much transformed overnight from this sickly sort of timid person with not much self-esteem to somebody writing books and going on the lecture circuit. But in one of his books, he talks about meeting a guy who he claimed was named Adam, who met in a restaurant and wanted to talk about Angelucci's UFO experiences. And Adam was kind of a mysterious character who supposedly met aliens as well. But in this restaurant scenario, Adam asks Angelucci to take this pill, take a small pill with a glass of water, which he does, which probably isn't the best thing to do. You know, some stranger gives you a pill and says, take this, but nevertheless, that's what Angelucci claimed he did. And what happened was that for 30 minutes or so, absolutely nothing happened. But after that, Angelucci started reporting how the room seemed to change in the diner where they were where they were sitting and that he said that the colours in the room seemed to take on new meaning and he saw like a little dancing figure on the table. And if you read it, it sounds like he'd been dosed with LSD. And I he would also think so, yeah. about how on the table right next to where they were sat there were two guys in military uniforms watching them very closely. But if you bear in mind the time frame, this is when people like the CIA were doing their early MKUltra LSD research. And I actually think if you read that in retrospect now, it comes across like somebody dosing up Angelucci with LSD and pumping him for information on his UFO experiences or trying to encourage more UFO experiences and to where Angelucci would have even more to talk about. So I think if the government was involved, and I think in this case there's a possibility, these people were being used unwittingly, not as, as witting players. You know, I, I met uh, Orfeo Angelucci uh, at least two or three times, probably out, out at Giant Rock. There was a, uh, a fellow who is long gone and forgotten uh, now, but he, he was not a contactee, but he was a friend of uh, some of them, and his name was uh, Max Miller. Do you know that uh, name? Uh, yeah, he was like a young guy who put on UFO conferences, wasn't he? Yeah, that's like, right. He, he put on the first indoor UFO conference in either 1952 or 53, mm -hmm. at which time he was only about 13 years old. It's amazing. And uh, he had some kind of a congenital heart disease and died young. But in the, uh, the 50s, and I guess up into the early 60s, he was quite active. He was quite friendly with uh, Orfeo, Orfeo Angelucci. Uh, just making a long story short, from reading the first book by Orfeo, I thought he would be in real life a very etheric, sort of nervous guy, a very uh, far out, uh, perhaps, and uh, gentle and so on. And uh, when I met him, he was of, of Italian extraction and uh, looked at it and acted it, and he was quite genial and, in that sense, very normal, and he was a big drinker. <laughs> and uh, we went out a couple of times, and he got drunk and told all kinds of interesting things, which is another long story. But he was totally different in person than one would have thought for reading his book. Did you get the impression, Jim, in knowing him and going out and having more than a few beers with him that he believed or disbelieved what he claimed to have happened to him? 
Well, he, he didn't make that clear, and actually, I don't remember if we really talked about it all that much. I could tell you a story that Orfeo told Max and me at one of our meetings. Max told me ahead of time, I'm going to try to get Orfeo to tell the story about the sheep. And uh, I knew what he meant by that, and I thought, well, that would be very interesting. So when we got there, and uh, Max didn't drink, I, I drank a bit, as I still do, and so did Orfeo. And as the evening wore, wore on, uh, Max kept urging Orfeo to tell the story about the sheep. And, and the story about the sheep was quite interesting. When Orfeo had lived, I guess, back east before he moved out to California, this must have been a quite uh, an unusually rough group. But he and some friends would get drunk of an evening and uh, go down to the sheep pen and have their way with the sheep. But that's not the punchline. Uh, he, as he told us, he, he said, well, you know, I always made sure that I got a female sheep, and some of those guys would screw anything. So, uh, oh, it, would, it would seem, yes, that that must have been quite a uh, lively group. But that is something that I wouldn't uh, make up on the poor man. He's long dead, I believe. But that is what he finally told us. That's the story of the sheep. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. This is so the story of the Paracast. We have Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, our co-host Nick Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, or maybe not alien-human, maybe just human-to-human -human interaction. You know, maybe we don't know. You know, Jim, over the years, you sponsored lectures in the New York area, and a couple of times you featured Dr. Frank Stranges, who recently departed, recently departed this world, and he had his own encounter with this alleged alien person. What was your feeling about him? Do you think he was up to something, a scam, well, or making uh, it up? What? Dr. Stranges was really perhaps the most interesting and colorful of all of the contactees that I met and uh, over the years I, I got to uh, know him uh, fairly well. We met at a number of uh, East Coast conventions and I guess I first met him out in uh, Giant Rock. I, I believe as early as 1957 he was showing some um, documentary that he had put together on, on the subject of, of, of flying saucers. Well, his most popular book by far, which I guess may have 
sold quite a number of copies and possibly made a great deal of money for him was the, the stranger at the Pentagon. And that's the story of Val Thor, a spaceman who, uh, among other things, went to the Pentagon and interviewed people and so on. Actually, I never read the book, so I can't really tell you a great deal about it. But Val Thor, uh, the whole thing sounded so uh, ridiculously science fiction-ish because Val Thor, Val is, of course, a short for Valiant, and Thor is, what is it, the Norse god of war or something? I don't know if it's Norse or German or what, but uh, Thor is a very powerful god figure of some sort in uh, in uh, pagan mythology. So uh, there, I mean, would you really expect a uh, space person from a distant planet to come here and call himself Thor? I mean, just starting from that point, I, I didn't really uh, believe the, the story. But uh, Stranges was a very complex and very interesting guy. He he had a lot of things going for him. For one thing, he had some kind of a pseudo degree whereby he was a immigration expert. People don't know that about him. And uh, for quite a large fee, he would help immigrants get their papers together so that they would, could stay in the United States. This is many years ago, I suppose. Not the immigration crisis that we have right now, but that's just one of the other hats that he wore. He was a, in a fraternal order of the police, some kind of an interstate thing. He, he was quite a character. Saucers were not his only thing, but as a core uh, point, he was uh, supposedly a biblical scholar, and that's where he came from, and I think he was also an expert, supposedly, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think he wrote at least one book about that. So he was a man of uh, many hues. Very interesting. In his last years, uh, he became extremely friendly with me. He was trying to raise money to make a movie uh, out of Stranger at, at the Pentagon, and I uh, know that he never succeeded in doing that, but he was still working on that project at the time of his death, which was, oh, two or three years ago, I would say. And he liked Smear, although Smear never endorsed him, and he sent us quite a large donation every year. It was interesting. Uh, actually, I guess it's this feather in my cap. Uh, some of these contactees uh, liked me, even though they knew I didn't believe a word they were saying. I, I can't really explain that. Did you know any of the other contactees, Jim? Well, the only other one uh, that I knew personally besides Strangers and Orpheo was, was Adansky. When Adansky was in his classic period, he, he was uh, living in a uh, place called Palomar Gardens, and there's been a lot of dispute about this. People say it was a hamburger joint and he was working there. Well, it wasn't exactly a hamburger joint, and he wasn't working there. I think he was just freeloading because he was a friend of the owner. And, and this was a little place that did serve, indeed, hamburgers and such and light meals. And it was at the beginning of a long, winding road that went up to Mount Palomar Observatory. Since he called himself uh, Professor Adamski, giving the impression that he had some kind of a degree, which he certainly didn't, uh, the real scientist at Mount Palomar 
was uh, were very upset about this because people would confuse the situation and think that Adamski had some connection with the observatory, which he certainly did not. And uh, I spent a whole afternoon interviewing uh, Adamski at uh, Palomar Gardens, and either that day or the next, I, I went up to the top of the mountain and interviewed the people at, at the observatory. And as I say, there was not much uh, love lost uh, between uh, these two groups. It was rather amusing. Nick Redfern, the various contactees, did any of them have a meaningful job prior to becoming famous for their alleged contacts? Well, certainly Van Tassel did. I mean, he had a, a very good job out at Hughes Aircraft. You know, that, that, that's a fact. Um, and then he basically quit his job, moved out to Giant Rock, and lived in the cave under, underground with his family. How did he support himself with contributions? Well, I think, you know, like a lot of these guys, contributions, sort of menial work. I think Van Tassel, you know, he helped maintain this airstrip out of Giant Rock and I think got some funding through that. You know, Adamski had his place on Palomar, as Jim just spoke about, and went on the lecture circuit, wrote books. You know, and I think like a lot of us who do what we do, you know, you you scrape a living <laughs> through what you do. One of, one um, of the things that, that George Adamski had done before he officially got into the sulfur field, and I don't know how far back this would go, and I don't remember offhand how I know it, but I read it in more than one place. He, during uh, Prohibition, which uh, lasted longer in some parts of the country than others, he had some kind of a, let's say, phony church that he was running, and as part of the sacrament, there was wine. So what he did, using that as an excuse, he manufactured vast quantities of wine and distributed it in, in violation of the uh, prohibition uh, situation, and uh, that's. In other words, he was a bootlegger. In other words, he was a bootlegger. Yes, <laughs> that was one of his earlier uh, professions uh, before he got into any of this uh, esoteric stuff, and I find that quite interesting and indeed amusing. Also, did any of these people, Nick or Jim? have a lot of money before they got involved in the contactee movement? No. No, I would agree. I, th I think a lot of them were just people who, some of them I think were, you know, just hoaxers and who latched onto people like Buck Nelson, you know, and his dog Bucky, <laughs> stories like that. But some of them, you know, they didn't have much money beforehand and maybe they didn't even need much money. They, you know, they got by because a lot of them, you know, I think were kind of attracted to alternative lifestyles, you know, like for example Adamski, years ago in the 30s had his Royal Order of Tibet so in other words, you know, I think it didn't matter to a lot of these people whether they had, you know, two cars a swimming pool or whatever you know, they were kind of happy like a lot of us are on this subject, you know getting by, going to conferences, hanging out with friends and doing research or whatever, but they, they didn't really feel a need to be a part of sort of the mainstream world, it wasn't a big deal to them, I don't think. No, I was just, excuse me for interrupting, no, I was just going to say, I don't think any of them made any vast uh, amount of money. Uh, probably the one that would have come closer uh, than any of the others to, to making good money would have been Adamski, at least at the beginning. And I don't know if that continued to the same extent for the rest of his life. I would rather think that it didn't. But, uh, he, he did quite well for a while. And I, I think you're right. Most of them just were happy with the, with the, the attention 
attention that they got, the ability to travel around the country and free load with uh, friends and followers. Some of them had little groups of followers in different cities and they'd uh, go and uh, give a, a special lecture to each one as they were going through that part of the country. And uh, it, it would be a, a very pleasant life and uh, an opportunity for them to express themselves in any way that they wanted. Nick, isn't it true also that some of these contactees maybe ran to some personal difficulties, such as divorces and such, because of this? Yeah, I guess the most famous one and kind of amusing one was the story of Truman Betherum. Betherum's story, to me, is one of my, my favorite ones because it sounds so outrageous, but when you dig into it, you find a lot of parallels with his story, with ancient stories, very old, centuries-old stories of meetings with higher beings and higher entities. And there's also like a sociological undercurrent to it as well, which I'll discuss. Basically, Bethram was a road worker and in 1952, working on highways in Nevada, felt compelled to go out to this huge mesa called Mormon Mesa, where he said he fell asleep and woke up to this huge flying saucer coming down, quite literally like something out of Dave Earth stood still. And these crew members came out. Interestingly enough, they weren't the classic long-haired blondes of the, that Adamski and Van Tassel talked about. They were actually smaller, like five foot tall, with wearing caps. Almost sounded like the Betty and Barney Hill aliens in some respects. But he said that, to cut a long story short, he met the, the captain of the spacecraft whose name was Aura Range. She was this beautiful, hot space babe. And the book kind of comes across between like Star Trek meets Baywatch or something like that. He claimed to have these sort of flirty late night encounters with Aura Range on top of this mesa, uh, you know, where they would discuss philosophy and things like this. And at the, at the Yes, philosophy, time, yes, indeed, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, no. He never claimed to have actually have had uh, sex with all of them. No, he didn't. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. To me, you know, if there was any truth to the story, I think, you know, that would have been the next step. But he claimed that didn't happen. But what he did say, and what he did admit, was at the same time he was having these meetings with this beautiful woman, that his second marriage was already on the rocks. If you read the story, to me, it almost comes across as like a subconscious attempt to get away from the difficulties of his married life with this fantasy woman who would fulfill all his needs, etc. He actually married for a third time. One of the things I point out to people, not many people realize, is that his third wife was named Alvira Roberts, who happens to share the same initials as Aura Reigns, A-R. So, you know, it was almost <laughs> as if it, it impacted on his entire married life. And a lot of people who knew him said that he came across as utterly believing his story and also that he was supposedly obsessed with Aura Reigns for the rest of his entire life. But he does come across to me as someone who may have had an experience and literally believed it with 100% certainty, but it may have been some sort of internal fantasy that was externalized to such a powerful extent that he came to believe it. He was married three times, uh, is that it? That's correct. He was married in the 40s, which didn't last yeah. long, then the 50s. And his wife left him because he was supposedly spending too much time with Aura. Yeah, well, wasn't Aura Rain's named as the correspondent or whatever the term is in his uh, divorce proceedings from his second wife? Yeah, that, that was one of the reasons behind the divorce was the fact that, you know, he was supposedly getting a little bit too close to this, uh, this alien woman. You know, one of the things I point out in the book as well is that you can look throughout history, particularly in fairy encounters, you know, in the 1500s and 1600s 
1800s in England where someone, a man, would be enchanted by the Fairy Queen and they would have, again, these late night encounters in an isolated area. They'd be subject to missing time. You know, kind of like the stuff that Valet talked about in Passport to Magonia. And I think there are parallels, enough parallels in Bethlehem's story to suggest that there are elements of that to the case as well, that he was somehow in an, an altered state of mind and, and may well have in, encountered something, but perhaps that something manifested in a way that was based around his internal worries about his marriages, etc. You know, his third marriage uh, was, uh, I don't want to say consummated, but the ceremony took uh, place at Giant Rock. I don't remember exactly which year, but I just happened to uh, be there. And on the uh, cover of one of the issues of Saucer News, I have a picture of the, uh, <laughs> I won't say young married couple, because they both were at least middle-aged and, and looked uh, uh, that old, definitely. But a picture of, of him and his, I guess, last wife at the ceremony or right after it. And I remember I had a, a sarcastic a caption to the picture, uh, something to the effect that uh, this would not take the place in his mind of his first love, which was money. And uh, it, it was uh, worded a little bit better than that. But anyway, that was my take on, on him. And uh, it was uh, interesting that I just happened to be there at that time. Jim Mosley, tell our listeners where they can learn about Saucer Smear. Well, it's funny that you would ask. Uh, he can. In fact, you can say it in a funny way if you want. Well, yes, you can do it any way you want, but just send a letter or a note or a psychic message or anything to uh, Saucer Smear. You don't even need that, but Saucer Smear, two words. P.O. Box 1709, Key West, two words, Key West, Florida, 33041. And so you're interested in receiving the magazine, and we'll take care of it from there. We have Nick Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear. More on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We have Nick Redfern, co-host author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, and we're looking into the life and times of the UFO contactees, and this hour we'll start relating them to more recent events and kind of see what happens. Nick, did any of these contactees ever run afoul of the law where the police got after them for alleged <laughs> thievery or fraud? Oh, yeah. There's, there's one. I have a whole chapter in the book. A man who actually wasn't that well-known in the field. His name was Harold Burney. He wrote a book called My Trip to Venus, now, Harold Burney was a sign painter, and not many people, even within the contact team movement, know of him, but I got hold of his FBI file, which talks about how he basically conned a woman, literally out of, I mean, not exaggerated, out of tens of thousands of dollars to help fund 
basically he's tripped to Venus and building a spaceport and all sorts of, you know, classic 1950s flying saucer type phenomenon, if you like. I mean, he, his was like a, a really tragic case for this woman who was basically just taken in by this man and, you know, just fleeced of all her money. And he received a lengthy jail sentence and the FBI would, were chasing him all around the country, trying to catch up with him. He was changing names and changing locations. You know, that's sort of one of the darker seedier sides, I suppose, you know, where for the most part, whether people believe it or not, they were entertained by it. But, you know, when you, you find a woman whose life was destroyed because she basically gullibly gave all her money away, what it does show is, you know, the sheer spell that many of these people had over their followers. And I think that's one of the things that the authorities were interested in, worried about, was the, the, the concentration of how how people's lives could be affected and, and, and literally changed overnight by becoming followers of the contactees. Now, of course, there are other people like Otis T. Carr, you know, who got into trouble with the authorities as well. He was, you know, like a cosmic equivalent of a used car salesman or something like that, always coming up with new plans and ideas that dropped him in hot water and sometimes implicated, not deliberately, people like uh, Wayne Aho who got involved with Otis Tikar and then found himself in hot water, not through anything that he did, but sort of guilt by association. So some of them were sort of colorful characters, best avoided if you got a few dollars in your pocket. You know, uh, Wayne Aho was uh, originally named or called uh, Wayne Aho, and he insisted on changing the pronunciation of his last name to Aho because Aho sounds too much like but yes yes that we probably can't say on this very high class radio program okay finish that's what i like about jim's stories jim's got all these weird little anecdotes all about these people from years ago well yeah i mean there was always something amusing about them you know uh, one thing that comes to my mind when i went as i say several times over the years to uh, giant rock van tassel was a very very nice person uh, again, he, he's one of the people that didn't seem to hold it against me that I was known as a skeptic as far as the contactees were concerned. I wasn't a skeptic about saucers, only in, in regard to their particular stories. And I, I remember, I forget how it began, but in one of those years I asked Ben Tassel if I could uh, speak from the rock. What he had was, uh, uh, there really was, of course, a giant rock. I don't remember just how tall it was, maybe 30 feet or so, and he had built a uh, stairway, a wooden stairway that went to the top, and then there was a platform there where you could stand comfortably, and there was a mic set up and so on. So one by one, people would give their speeches in the course of the day. And I don't think there was any schedule of it. As far as I remember, it was just ad lib. So when I asked Van Tassel, can I speak from the rock, he said, sure, go ahead. And I said, well, how long do I have? He said, take as long as you want. And uh, I think he meant it. So I got up there and just said a few words to the crowd and so on. But I just thought it was very nice of him. I, I did that two or three different years. I don't think the uh, crowd, the ones that knew me, were particularly happy to see me or hear from me. But uh, Van Tassel, of course, was very nice about it. And uh, just another thing, uh, he had uh, most of those years uh, at least a thousand or two people, sometimes more, that would come out to the desert and 
park their cars or their vans or campers or whatever in the vicinity. He he didn't attempt to charge them anything for any of that. The only commercialism there was, uh, his wife ran a little uh, hamburger stand and no one else did. It's not that she had the exclusives, nobody else tried to, so I guess he made a little money from that, but uh, in his own way, he seemed like a very decent fellow. Now, about the Integratron, this thing, this big observatory-type tower or globular thing that he built in the desert, Nick, what was the outcome of that? What were they promising of it, and whatever happened to that device? Well, basically, it's still out. I've been out to the Integratron several times, and you're quite right, Gene. It looks like this, best way to describe it, it's kind of like a, a huge astronomical observatory. It's like a two-story domed white building out in the desert near the town of Landers, which is a couple of hours' drive outside of L.A. And the, the, the idea was, according to Van Tassel, was that it was built on the instructions of the Space Brothers, and it would have the ability to, I guess, rejuvenate human body cells and the human body. So whether we would achieve immortality or an extended or a drastically extended lifespan, I guess, is open to question. But but that was the that was the notion of it. That was when it was finished. I guess it would contain technologies or you know some sort of power that would would rejuvenate body cells, etc. Now again, you know whether or not that's true or that's open to interpretation as to whether or not. Van Tassel believed it, or, you know, he was told something, who knows? But, but that was the essential theme of it. And today, they, they used to have a, um, a conference there, which was held for, I think, three years. I spoke at the last one, which was called the Retro UFO Conference. It was actually a very good idea, because it was actually held out at Giant Rock and at the Integratron. And it was very much themed around you know, the early years of ufology, not in kind of like wallowing in nostalgia, but just bringing home to a new audience the early years of the subject that a lot of people didn't know about. And, um, you know, for me to go out there and to see the Integratron, having heard about it for years, it, it was sort of like a interesting and even powerful experience to actually be where, I guess, ufological history was made, regardless of what, you know, you think about these people. And it still stands to this day, and they have seminars, lectures, meditations, and all sorts of things there. So it's, in other words, it's still like a viable place. Why did they stop having the uh, conventions there? I mean, I, I, um, I know I truthfully they never don't caught know, on. Huh? I truthfully don't know. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure as you can attest, back in the 50s, when it was at its height, the conferences at Giant Rock were getting thousands of people. When I was there, I think there were maybe 60 people, and I'm sure, you know, it costs quite a bit of money to fly people in and put an event on, and I guess, I don't know, 60 people cuts it, you know, in terms of making it viable or not. So. Do you know who who owns it now? What kind of people own uh, the entire train? I'm not actually sure of that. No, I'm, I'm not really sure now. Well, you know, it went through several different incarnations, you might say, mm -hmm. after... Uh, Van Tassel died, and uh, uh, I, I don't know the whole story either. It, it's been closed for periods of time. It's they tried this, they tried that. I think they even tried to make it into a wedding chapel at one point. But as you say, even though the conventions have stopped again now, they do have other activities there. 
You know, I wanted yeah. to ask a question here that comes up now, which is we're talking about the contactees. They were popular in the 50s and the 60s. Then we heard about Barney and Benny Hill. And this is a line of demarcation. We kind of forgot about the contactees. Nick, was it all about the contact claims basically winding down, or was our attention well, focused elsewhere? Well, I think this is, this is an interesting thing. It's, for example, people... People assume, I think quite wrongly, that the the contactee movement was replaced by, you know, these little grey guys with the black eyes, you know, involved in the abductions. In reality, the, the contactee movement never went away. You can still find classic contactee cases to this day. They're certainly not as prevalent. And I think the other big thing that people forget is they're not publicized as much today. You know, so in, in other words, the contactee movement was definitely overshadowed by the abduction movement, but it wasn't a case of some people think that one just literally replaced the other one. I think what happened is that probably as our technologies developed, people perceive abductions and, you know, the genetic experiment angle as being more logical and serious than the Space Brothers angle. And there's a lot of people within the UFO subject who are striving to be t taken very, very seriously. You know, the fact is, there are massively absurd things in ufology, which, and we shouldn't ignore that. You know, ufology can be a funny, humorous, wacky, absurd subject, and we should embrace that. But there's so many people who feel it threatens their credibility, so they steered away, they steered away from the contactee issue and moved more into the area they saw that would give them respectability, i.e. the issue of alien scientists coming and treating us like lab rats, which seems, you know, plausible. So I think that's what happened. The old times just got eclipsed by the newer times. Okay, well, let's talk about newer times. Are there current-day contactees that we should know about that have claims that are similar <laughs> to the original? Of course, they're not coming from Venus anymore. Yeah, oh, I mean, <laughs> they, they have a hot time over there, I'll tell you. Yeah, 700 degree uh, surface temperature, I think. Yeah, but I mean, I interviewed a couple of people for the book who told me quite openly, you know, that they'd had experiences with aliens where, um, you know, they were human-like aliens. I talk in the book about one at Stonehenge, of all places, where somebody had seen this human-like being, but there was something strange about them. They were dressed in like a one-piece ski suit, long blonde hair, uh, and literally vanished in the wink of an eye after just approaching someone and talking about crop circles and how crop circles were a message from the aliens warning us to change our ways. So in other words, the same message and motif was being used in England in, a crop, in, in Stonehenge in relation to crop circles in the 1990s as was being used back in the California desert in the 50s. Now, again, the big question is whether this is all some sort of internal experience of the witness or there literally is some sort of higher intelligence, you know, traveling the decades and the planet trying to get these messages across. But this case, I mean, this case came across as a classic contactee event. There's no doubt about that. So, so the scale of the reports might have gone down, but whatever's behind this phenomenon, it's still out there sort of playing its tricks and its games, etc. Well, Nick, do you think uh, any of the kind of the crop circles are made by aliens or other unknown no. forces, or, or are they all hoaxes? 
Well, you know, it, it's interesting how you use the term hoax, Jim, because I do think the crop circles and formations are made by people predominantly. And I certainly think all the complex ones are. Now, I actually know a number of people who make formations, and when people call them hoaxes, that implies basically that these people are pulling the wool over people, other people's eyes and trying to deceive them. However, if you look into it, what you actually find is that many of the people who make the crop circle formations have um, agendas and motivations that go far beyond or, or don't even include trying to trick people. For example, um, some people who make crop circles view what they do as a form of artwork and instead of using paints and pencils and easels etc they use the medium of crop and they feel that what they're doing is presenting a new type of artwork that people can come and see and interact with you know you don't just go to a museum and look at a painting on a wall with a crop circle you enter the field you feel changed by it and rejuvenated as some people have said and it's almost like an interactive experience now i have another friend of mine matthew williams who has the uh, who can claim and boast of being the only person ever arrested and convicted charged and convicted in britain of making a, cro a crop circle the actual charge was causing damage to a field oh i read uh, that yeah yeah but matthew Matthew has had a number of very weird experiences in crop circles that he has personally made, such as seeing strange balls of light over the formation, uh, experiencing missing time, all sorts of strange things. And Matthew actually thinks that many of the circle makers are actually kind of being channeled by some sort of higher intelligence which is instilling them to go out and make the formation. So they're almost acting as like a channeler or as a contactee for some intelligence. And whereas people like Adamski and Van Tassel were going out on the lecture circuit, today's people are being provoked to make these formations so we think about them and try and interpret them. So, you know, in other words, the people involved in the phenomenon aren't hoaxes. There seems to it goes far deeper as well with that. So I think I, I, I think you make a very good point because from what little I read about it, most of the people that know uh, how to make these crop circles and have confessed having done so are themselves on some kind of a spiritual. Uh, kick. Yes. And and uh, they, if I'm not uh, mistaken, uh, have had, we might say, uh, abnormal or, or supernormal experiences when uh, hanging out, as it were, in their own crop circles. In other words, uh, it, it's uh, indeed not a hoax, and I used the, the wrong word. They are expressing their spirituality, I suppose, by doing this. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I think that's what a lot of people, again, who view it as black and white, a lot of people in the UFO field want crop circles to be made by aliens. It's not just that they believe they're made by aliens. They actually want that theory to be true because it, it fits in with their kind of comfort zone and their belief system. Now, my view is that when you start having belief systems that are rigidly held, you know, you fall into a trap you'll never get out of. Hey neighbors, would you like to see the PowerCast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the PowerCast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com 
That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. On the PowerCast, we have Nick Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction, Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear. You were saying, Nick, about this? Yeah, I think, you know, the people within the crop circle research community, they want crop circles to be made by aliens. You know, that is the primary focus of a lot of people's research. Now, when you have a belief system about crop circles or any phenomenon, then you kind of, you're already lost. You know, we need to have an open mind, not a, a rigidly set mind. And I think what the, what a lot of people in the crop circle UFO research community haven't done is to get to know the people who make these formations. And I said, I several good friends who do this, one of them, Matthew Williams. And as Jim said, you know, a lot of these people, they're not necessarily religious, but they do have deeply held spiritual mind, body, spirit views. And they feel, some of them at least, that creating these formations kind of, you know, bridges a link between the physical world and the paranormal world. And that maybe they're acting as a vessel from something in a in another realm of existence to actually create these formations like they're a channeler for something that, and then they're the the artist and again it's a controversial theory but it doesn't take away as the possibility as some people think that crop circles have anomalous origins what it means though is that if there is some force behind them it's actually using the crop circle makers to achieve its aims so to speak it's not a question of either real or hoax is far more complex than that. That's all I wanted to say. Well, let's look back at the contactee claims. And we look at the fanciful claims. We look at the fact that people had messages of peace and brotherhood like Adamski. They wanted to present it in a way they felt would be acceptable. So instead of having it come out of this unknown guy named George Adamski, the blonde-haired Venusians from Venus bring it. But we alluded to this earlier. Is there any genuine paranormal aspect to any of it? Where may we find it, Nick? To the contactee movement, you mean? Yes. Well, you know, I think, I think like all of ufology, what we're lacking is proof. You know, there, there, there is no proof. Um, all we have to work with are theories, ideas, and witness testimony. You know, it's like, for example, with Roswell. People would love to say they've solved Roswell, but no, what they've actually done is collected a lot of interesting witness reports and testimony. The proof would be the craft or the bodies or whatever. And that's the same with the contact team movement. You know, there's no firm evidence that Truman Bathroom ever met a physical space, hot space woman named Aura Rains. There's no physical evidence that George Adamski ever met aliens out in the California desert. So I think that like all aspects of the 14 world, the UFO world, we're forced to go with what we have. And most of that 
is simply witness perception and testimony. And, you know, maybe it's always going to be like that. Maybe there's something about the phenomenon that prevents us from ever getting too close to it. I think that also is a very good point. Uh, the proof is always lacking, and either that's an accident or it's a plan of some sort that uh, the an uh, alien entities or whatever the hell they are uh, don't want us to uh, be able to prove it and, and I remember I forget where this happened it might have been years ago in Europe but one of these creatures said to the uh, man who saw his little craft land uh, this was not a contactee thing it was just a a man, perhaps a farmer, who, who saw a craft land and the creature got out. And the creature said, we want you to believe in us, but not too much. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's uh, very interesting. There's some germ of truth there. Yeah, that was actually Herbert Shermer, the um, policeman who was... Uh... Oh, 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 was it Shermer? Yes, you're right. Yeah. Boy, yeah. you've got a, and, you've and that, got a better grip on this than I do. Yeah, that, that's an interesting little quote, you know, the idea that there is something to believe in, but, you know, what is it and to what extent should we believe in it? I think, you know, these are all important factors to me where, you know, as I said, when I first got interested in UFOs, I thought when I was a little kid, you know, teenager or whatever, I did think it was all very much black and white that, you know, the aliens are coming, we've got crashed UFOs, etc., etc., the more I looked into it as I got older, the more I saw parallels between today's UFO movements and the, or the, the subject of UFOs and, you know, things like fairy encounters in the 1500s or encounters with angels and demons two or 3,000 years ago. It's just the motif that's changed. The actual actions and the experiences and the way it changes people, that stayed the same. It's just the claim point of origin for these beings has altered as, as we've altered. Kind of like, I guess, John Keel's Operation Trojan Horse, that sort of thing. Yeah, can I tell my favorite George Adamski story? Please. I, I was on Long John Neville's radio show twice, I think, with Adamski, maybe about a year or so apart. And uh, Long John's show started at midnight and ended at 5 or 5.30 in the morning. So you can imagine that not everybody that was listening stayed awake for the whole thing. And obviously your ratings would drop right off a cliff, so to speak, after perhaps 1 o'clock and by 2 or 3. And not that many people are listening anymore. So when John had a, a guest, such as Adamski, he would uh, hog the mic for the first hour interviewing the guest and giving his own views about whatever he wanted to say. And by the time the panel, and I was always just a panelist, not the guest of honor, but the background people, usually three or four of us, didn't get to say much of anything until at least 1 or one thirty in the morning. So when I finally got a, a chance to talk to Adansky, I, I'm saying again, I don't know how many people actually heard this, but I, I had some questions in, in mind, and one was this. I remembered that, that Adansky had often said, two and two are five, which doesn't seem to make any sense, but what he supposedly meant was that there is a unit of energy 
that is needed in order to uh, add two and two. And again, that makes no sense either, but that's what he said. So uh, when I had my chance uh, on that radio show, I uh, asked uh, Zdansky, tell me, George, how much is two and two? And this is the answer that uh, a handful of listeners must have heard. He said it can be either four, five, or six, depending on the circumstance. And I figured that's as far as I can go with this, so I didn't, I deliberately didn't ask any follow-up questions. I thought, well, that's it. If, if you can accept that, uh, you're there. Because imagine if real mathematics went that way. You couldn't build anything. You couldn't have a bridge. You couldn't have anything that you can imagine that's done with math if there was a, <laughs> a question as to what the value of each number would be. So uh, I, uh, I liked his answer very much. Well, at least he has a lot of flexibility in that answer. Well, yes, he must have uh, either been asked the same question before or he was very quick on the draw. I don't know. <laughs> I finally made you laugh. Well, you know, I never laugh because, you know, if I laugh too much, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, keel over and that's it. But that's like John Keel. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Nick Redfern, author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear. We're talking about the contactee movement from the early days of the UFO field to the present day. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Nick, the abduction scenario seems to be more a simultaneous thing rather than a replacement for contactees. But is there any bridge between the two, the missing time effect, things like that? Well, you know, I mean, some people argue that the Antonio Villas-Boas case from Brazil sort of straddled the contactee movement um, and the abduction movement in the sense the being this woman that Antonio Villas-Boas supposedly met out in Brazil in 1957, I think it was, or 1959, I think, that she was sort of very human looking but he was treated like basically like a lab rat so in other words he had some of the motifs of the abduction scenario and other motifs from the contactee world so i think in that respect you know you could argue that the villas boas case had parallels with both and if you look at also the betty and barney hill case of 1961 if you go back and, and read their original accounts and the interrupted journey the creatures that the Hills claim to have met, they weren't the sort of three foot tall, very 
spindly insect-like greys of today's world. They were like five foot tall. They had pupil eyes with pupils. They were wearing like skull caps, and you know they, they looked more human-like. And again, you know, could we argue that that was sort of like a cross be between the two? phenomena i think you know there is an argument to be made for that as well in terms of putting an entire picture on where this stands in ufo research should we treat the traditional contactee with any seriousness at all i mean it's a fun story we're enjoying it we're having a good time how do we take it seriously jim do you want oh, to that one? well no i i don't take it all that seriously and most of all, uh, as we've been covering in the last few minutes, since none of, of these contactees have any proof whatsoever, and you could also say that goes with uh, other UFO cases too, it all depends what you define proof as, but when you have stories that are really no more than, than hearsay in, in, in the sense of evidence, then it doesn't really matter how seriously you take them. I mean, they're just like folklore. There's just nothing there. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the one thing I would say is that, you know, the, what I try to point out in the book is that I think there are some anomalies that lead us to believe that, or lead me to believe, that it's not just as black and white as they were hoaxes or not. You know, the, the links with the FBI, the communist angle, LSD and mind control. I do think there's a lot more going on. But what for me leads me to sort of take the subject seriously in terms of its significance is the sheer overwhelming effect it had on people. I mean, to give you a classic example, you know, I speak at a lot of UFO conferences. Today's UFO conferences attract maybe 300 people at most, and that, that's a good size audience. The organizers are always complaining, you know, this year's got to be the last one because they're not making any money, people aren't coming along. Well, if you go back to the 50s, at a giant rock, you know, Van Tassel was getting five audiences of five and six thousand. You know, no one in the UFO field can compete with what well, there was. Well, there was a difference, though. Uh, well, first of all, I think after the first year, he only got a couple of thousand. I, mm -hmm. I heard that the first year he had five or ten thousand, but I was mm -hmm. not there. I don't, I, I don't know. But uh, there was more to it than that because you didn't even have to be interested in saucers to uh, want to go to Giant Rock. I mean, it was a. Uh, a beautiful experience uh, as far as nature and scenery is uh, concerned and uh, you could go out there and do anything that you wanted you didn't have to listen to the speakers and most of all there was no entrance fee and I think that makes a whole lot of difference I mean I talked to, to different people of course with the times that I was out there and some some of the people were on a different kick that had nothing whatever to do with saucers uh, some of them seemed pretty normal uh, in general, and uh, you know, they were just all kinds of people. But again, uh, the most defining thing is no fee, and that's what I was saying before. Uh, he, Van Tassel, might have thought of some way he could have charged for parking, I guess, even though he didn't own the land. I don't think. Mm. I mean, there's uh, many ways he could have exploited this and didn't. These days, I think more and more, especially in the uh, recession that we have now, people. 
don't feel that it's, it's worth the money to uh, go to a saucer convention. First, you usually get the people that have said pretty much the same thing many times before at previous conventions, and uh, you know, or, or you can buy <laughs> you can buy a tape of it and listen to it much cheaper. Do you agree? Uh, uh, yeah, I do agree. I th and I think, you know, that, that's an important point is the fact that, you know, as, as Jim points out, that the subject back then was very different. You know, the nature of the conferences and the, where they were held was different, the free entry and things like that. And I think today's, today's ufology has become, unfortunately, more based around the commercialization of the subject, which isn't a bad thing in terms of because it brings more attention to the subject to people and it gets the word out more. You know, I do think back in those days, back in the 50s, what the contactee movement achieved, which unfortunately no one can achieve in today's world, is to provoke the creation of a huge movement of followers and people who, you know, bought the books and went to the conferences. And it really became almost like a like an early version of, you know, the flower power thing in the 1960s, promoting, you know, alternative belief systems, lifestyles, you know, everybody hanging out together. And I think ufology today is, is fighting and struggling to stay alive, and it's kind of lost its way because it doesn't know what to do. Now, whether or not people agree that the contactees are doing the right thing or not, the fact is that they achieved a position, I think, in the UFO world that really, whether people agree with their stories or not, has never actually been eclipsed in terms of its sheer size following and the effects, the transformative effect that it had on people's lives. Well, you know, there's another factor too. I mean, if we say that the modern flying saucer era began in 1947, which is the year naturally of Roswell and the year of Kenneth Arnold. Years ago, we always thought of Arnold as the beginning, but now it's Roswell. They're only about 10 days apart, I think. But the, the thing is, we're going on now for uh, over 60 years, and nothing has improved. Uh, we don't have proof yet. We're nowhere near it, and a lot of people get frustrated and give it up and want to uh, join some other movement where you have more hope of uh, actually getting somewhere. I, I think there's a great deal of frustration and just very briefly I, I think that most people are correctly abandoning the extraterrestrial theory. Not most people but many of the more intellectual people and I think more so in England than here because there is more intellectual activity in that in England than here, uh, but uh, they're thinking of alternate theories because uh, they're just getting nowhere at all uh, with that theory. Do you do you think that's about right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found, I think a lot of people who enter the UFO subject go one of two ways. They either go the way I did, and I think you've gone a lot of people like Greg Bishop have, where you initially come into it thinking it is all. UFOs, nuts and bolts, aliens, and then you begin to realize that it's really a very old phenomenon that seems to manipulate us as much as show itself to us. 
and that there seems to be a high degree of trickery and elusiveness involved. And in terms of the straightforward extraterrestrial hypothesis, a lot of material that comes across as very absurd and illogical if you try and apply it to that theory. And so a lot of people change their views, as I've done. Other people become rigidly stuck within the ETH extraterrestrial hypothesis, I think because they've been invested in it for so long that it would be almost like, you know, a death knell to them to try and get away from it. And so I feel that they try and uphold it because that's all that they've ever known. And to sort of turn away from it would be seen as, you know, um, affecting their credibility. So they do whatever they can to hang on to it. And it, and it becomes almost like a, a cosmic religion. It becomes a belief system. Oh, absolutely. What I like about you, Nick, is if I have interpreted it uh, correctly, you have written quite a large number of books, and some of them might even be contradictory to each other. Uh, when you get on a, a subject, you exhaust it as best you can, uh, but you don't personally have to believe your own book in the sense that it's the only answer. There, there might not be any alternative answer. You don't go that far, and I think that's perfectly correct, and I think that's why, if I may say so, you, you're probably number one in the field right now. Oh, well, thank you, Jim. Thanks. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I don't believe what's in the books. What I would say is that if I publish something today, and five years from now, something comes out that totally contradicts it. You know, I don't have a problem with saying, okay, I got it wrong. Because, yeah, okay. you know, I think what we all have to remember is in the UFO subject, the U still stands for unidentified. It doesn't stand for alien spacecraft or time travelers or whatever. We don't know what these things are. So I don't feel the need to be held to a particular belief system because that colors your views. What I will do, what I try and do is write something and come to a conclusion. And hopefully I've got it right. But if I got it wrong, you know, I'll be the first to say so because I don't feel an emotional need you know, to believe aliens crashed at Roswell or, or ABC or whatever. You know, I think we just need to go where the evidence goes, and, and our search might change as time progresses. You know, going well, you where know. the evidence goes, this takes us to another subject, which, of course, is deception, trickery. So alien beings come to George Adamski. Maybe they didn't. Or come to anyone, say, we're from Venus because in those days people expected aliens to be on Venus or Mars. And that's not true, of course. And they don't even look like blonde-haired humans, but they're being deceived. Now, that comes to the same conclusion that you might come with these abductions, that if aliens or any force out there, wherever they are, are performing these abductions or influencing people to believe their abductions, you're not seeing what's really happening. You're being deceived. You're being fooled. What do you think about that, Nick? Well, yeah, I think, you know, there's no doubt that if you look at the UFO subject, there are deep elements that seem to be like stage-managed trickery. I mean, as Jim will know, you go back, and you'll know as well, if you go back to the 50s, there used to be classic reports where people would see aliens taking soil samples. Now, it was almost, to me, it comes across like that these are being staged for people to see them. Um, and I think it was being done to instill the idea that they were extraterrestrial scientists visiting the planet. But it, these kind of cases happen so often that it was almost as if it would be too 
inconceivable to think that people would just keep stumbling across aliens taking soil samples. It was almost as if the phenomena existed to be seen and it needed to be seen to exist. I think, you know, there's an argument for that as well. You know, and the idea that the aliens are always keen to tell us they come from this place or they come from that place. It's almost as if they're trying too hard to convince us they're alien. And maybe they are. But to me, there seems to be a high degree, not just within the UFO subject, but a whole range of paranormal subjects where trickery is at the heart of what's going on. And uh, but people, unfortunately, take the events at face value. Well, you know, uh, there, uh, there's another problem, too. Not only the contactees, but really all of the UFO sightings that have any detail to them. Each incident is different. Each time the craft is seen, it's different. Each time there's a, a message from the so-called aliens, it's not the same as anybody else's message. So if there's no identical thread running through all of this stuff, that's another reason that the cynics and the debunkers will say, well, it's all nonsense, because uh, if you're looking at an airplane, a normal airplane, let's say you can see it from different angles, but you, uh, the more times you see it, the more easily you'll be able to draw exactly what the uh, core phenomenon, so to speak, is. Is. That doesn't seem to be true at all with saucers. It's uh, chaos and unique events, and uh, that's very discouraging to a lot of people. Well, you know, one of the yeah. things that people might argue with, though, is that you're seeing something that you got no warning about. Suddenly it comes there, and if you put 10 people in a room and present some sudden, unexpected, peculiar event, and they do this in law school, I think, you would get 10 different opinions of what exactly they saw, Nick. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I mean, you know, it's like people talk about car accidents. Everybody has their own opinion on what they saw. And, of course, if it's a stressful event, like a car accident can be, your mind's in a whirl and you don't necessarily register everything that happened. And afterwards, you know, your mind picks up on things that you forgot about or that were blank from your mind. And I think that's an important factor to remember in any any sort of experience that really sort of challenges the mind of the person. But in saying that, you know, Jim's quite right that, you know, that all the, a lot of these cases are so different. I mean, other than one or two photographs, you look at all the photographs of alleged UFOs, they're all different. A lot of them may be saucer-shaped or whatever, but there are subtle differences. It's almost as if every alien that's ever come to the planet and it's got his own custom designed craft exactly um, well maybe that's part of what it is you see um the other worlds what they can do is alter themselves in any way they want i'm being I silly here so. no no gene you can alter yourself any way you want but i don't think they can well uh, therefore why did you alter yourself jim the way you did I don't know, but uh, I'll just uh, add one more thing to, to this. In science, obviously, you have an experiment or you have a, a phenomenon, and you can duplicate it uh, under control conditions, and that's what the whole thing is about. Something happens, you duplicate it. Other scientists in other labs and in other 
parts of the country or other parts of the world, when they read the write-up of the experiment, uh, they can do the same thing themselves, and it'll come out the same way. With saucers, not only each event is unique in its details, but as you uh, said, Gene, we don't know when and where these things are going to happen, and uh, most of all, it cannot be duplicated. You can't uh, just do it again the same way and gain anything by that because it's impossible. It's a unique event. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear. Our co-host is Nick Redfern author of Contactees, A History of Alien-Human Interaction. This also, when we're getting to the final stage of the show, this also takes us to the possibility here that there is a core real event, but it becomes so subjective that we have infused it so much with our own expectations that no matter what we do, we're not going to understand what's at the source. Nick, what do you think? I mean, I, I'm not going to deny the possibility that aliens could be coming here that that what people believe is happening could be happening but the more i've dug into the subject i found that to try and prove the eth is not just hard it's almost as if you know as i mentioned earlier the phenomena itself is somehow elusive like it has like a trickster quality to it and you also find this in things like bigfoot research Loch Ness monster where people try and photograph these things and the photographs don't come out properly or the pictures get lost in a house move you know somebody's got a bit of metal from the roswell crash and that gets lost you know just just reminded me of something we had a guy named doug on the show who says he's a ufo abductee and he had this kind of situation here where they took this was some years back they used regular film to take a photograph of ufos they sent it to the developing plant and of course, of all the things they had taken to the developing plant, this is the one where the roll disappeared. Yeah. Well, it's similar. It's similar to, for example, you know, you you can look at things like, you know, in the UFO subject, as I said, the evidence for Roswell. But you can go back again in 1500s, where people said they visited the fairy kingdom and they tried to bring something back from the fairy realm, and they were stopped at the last minute by the the fairies. It's kind of similar to that. That whenever people deal with whatever these weird phenomena are, they're never able to get the hard physical evidence. And that's why I sometimes wonder if what we're seeing, that none of it's physical, that it's almost like a matrix hologram type thing that's perhaps designed to instill ideas and thoughts in us and that manifests and changes 
its appearance to suit the people of the times and the cultural belief systems. You know, 2,000 years ago, it appeared in, as angels and demons. 500 you know, years ago, that, uh, that makes me think of something that I had forgotten about. Wasn't it uh, a fact that as Betty and Barney Hill were leaving the spaceship, uh, one of the aliens wanted to give them a book, I think, and another alien stopped the first alien from doing it, so they allegedly came that close to having something that would have been proof, we would assume, and at the last minute, uh, it didn't happen. Am I well, right? it wouldn't have happened anyway, because that was staged for them. Well, that's what we're saying, yeah, but... Uh, you know, they, they basically knew that they'd never give them the book. There wouldn't always be someone to come up and say, no, you can't give them that book. Well, you know, there's another thing, too. If these creatures, wherever they're from, are well organized, you wouldn't have a thing like that happening. You wouldn't have one alien about to do something like that and, and a superior officer uh, say, no, you can't do that. I mean, well, that is part of the show. What you no, have? they're putting on a show. It's the same thing, for example, as a star map. Do you believe yeah. that star map is anything more than a show? Whoever yeah. is responsible for the show, it is a play. Well, yes, that's true. They didn't actually get the star map. Didn't, didn't uh, Betty come up with it later from her memories? I mean, they didn't get a, a physical piece of paper with a, a star map on No, that was one of those memories, I think a hypnotic yeah. memory, right? And and uh, to make a long story short, you can make many different star maps if you're very careful about it, and all of them will apply, and therefore none of them apply. That's what I think. Nick, in your research for the book Contactees. Did you see any evidence there, other than the fact that there's an FBI file on Adamski and other people, evidence of government intervention in what's going on? In the contactee movement? Yes, any kind of movement like this. Well, contactees, abductees? Well, yeah, I mean, for example, uh, in George Adamski and George Van Tassel were actually both visited several times by FBI agents. I mean, that's actually reflected in the file. In one memorable case, two FBI agents based in Los Angeles traveled out to Landers, California, and were kind of like, you know, sort of flummoxed and put on the spot when they realized they were going out to meet this guy living in a cave under giant rock. But they traveled out, you know, and, and you know, in talking of intervention, you know, they, they actually went out to the people. It was literally almost like a Mulder and Scully situation of two FBI agents trying to get to the bottom of these stories about alien encounters in the desert. So, in that respect, government has taken like a proactive step to intervene and find out what's going on. It's not a case of just writing these people off. Now, you know, as to what that means and how we interpret it, that's a different matter. But I think what I think has happened is that for the most part, you know, governments don't really care if somebody sees a light in the sky, you know, big deal. I think they, they're more concerned about cases involving the military. But I think the main concern that governments have is the potential way in which the human mind and the collective belief systems of people can be altered quite radically by encounters with UFOs or getting into the subject. It's kind of like, you know, I, I drew up earlier on the flower power thing in the 1960s. That was like a cultural revolution that could have transformed the the human race, but it was stamped on by the government because people in government were afraid of the old conventional ways being changed. And so, you know, it was basically that whole movement was, was crushed. Now, had, you know, had it been allowed to thrive and continue, 
the flower power movement, LSD, everything else, who knows what sort of world we'll be living in today. It could be a far more positive one. And I think the UFO subject potentially offers people a radically altered lifestyle and mindset. And I don't think people in, I think people in government know that, and they're doing whatever they can to prevent that from happening. Of course, the question is, is there an external force other than the government that might be responsible, that is orienting ourselves towards a direction. Of course, we remember, and Jim knew him very casually, and I knew the guy, Ray Palmer, who some consider one of the originators of the UFO field because he was co-author of the book with Kenneth Arnold, and he had Fade magazine and mentioned Flying Saucers in Amazing Stories, a science fiction magazine. He said, Flying Saucers are here to make us think. Think about what? What do you think? Nick? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the, I'm not sure if they want us to think about this or think about that. I, I think at least part of it is the idea of, uh, I think the UFO subject, more than anything else, allows people to be individuals. You know, it's like, for example, regardless of whether people believe the contactees or not, the fact is, people like Adamski, Van Tassel, Beckerham, Angelucci, they became individuals, they became people living their lives according to their own ways and, you know, let's not give a damn about what society thinks about us. And I think governments want us to be part of a society. They don't want us to be free-thinking individuals. And I think the UFO subject, because of its transformative qualities and potentials, it allows all, us all to become free-thinking individuals following our own pathways, and a lot of us in the UFO subject do that. And if that were to happen on a massive scale, you know, it could challenge the fabric of society. So I think that's, I think that's what the UFO subject is trying to do, or, or has the potential to do, is to allow each of us to elevate ourselves to individuals, not to be part of the herd, so to speak. Uh, Nick, I wanted to ask you, how many pages did you say were in George Adamski's uh, FBI file? Uh, George Adamski's says about 95. George Van Tassel's, I can tell the exact figure, it's 398. Van Tassel's is much bigger than Adamski's, huh? Yeah, one of the reasons why his is bigger is that I'm not sure how they got hold of them, but the FBI actually got hold of some of Van Tassel's newsletters, and some of the pages of the newsletters comprise parts of the file as well. Now, some of the contactee FBI files are smaller. I got Frank Strange's FBI file, which is actually only about nine pages long. And one of the funny things is there's actually a, one of the pages is a letter from Richard Hall to the FBI, basically <laughs> putting Frank Strange in a bad light. You know? So uh, it was almost like, uh, you know, the, the, some of these files contain letters of infighting, you know, from people within the UFO community. Well, one of the reasons that Adamski was visited by the FBI of course, was the fact that he received this letter from this uh, mysterious person uh, in the State Department called Raymond E. Strait. Uh, and uh, he uh, was pleased with the letter because it uh, seemed to endorse unofficially his views and 
his uh, experiences. And uh, so naturally, Adamski wanted to make the most of it. And uh, the FBI, as I understand it, came to him and said, uh, this is a hoax. Uh, this is not a genuine letter uh, from the State Department. And we want you to stop publicizing it because it's not a real letter. And after that happened, of course, Adamski was more adamant than ever that it was real. Whether he actually thought it was real, we don't know. But he got louder in talking about it after the visit from the FBI. And, I and of course, we all know with to shortcut this that a certain the late Gray Barker and Jim Mosley were responsible yes, well, for this are, letter. There are rumors to the effect that the uh, Strafe letter was uh, conceived and executed by Gray Barker and Jim Mosley. Yeah. In a less than sober condition, I would add, right? I would expect. Yeah, I uh, I always told Gray, I said, uh, you know, I'm younger than Gray was. I mean, if he was alive, he'd be 15 or so years older than I. I said, if I outlive you, I said, I'm going to confess to the straight letter because it was fun doing it, but in the long run, we've got to set the record straight and show people the rest of the story. And he said, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. But when he died, in the very next issue of Saucer News, I had the whole thing there. And one other comment I'd, I'd make shows the will to believe. I can't remember the man's name now, but there's a guy in California who is a hardcore Adamski follower because there's still some kind of cult or small group that uh, believes in Adamski's uh, stories and promotes them. And uh, this uh, fellow, I talked to him a couple of times on the phone. Up until it's probably less than five years ago, he still insisted on believing that this straight letter was genuine. I'll tell you what, we have to just about end it there. Jim, tell our listeners where they can learn more about Saucer Smear. All right. Well, then, if you want to get Saucer Smear and learn the real truth about everything, uh, write to Saucer Smear at P.O. Box 1709, Key West, two words, Key West, Florida, 33041, and we will be glad to inform you as to how you can become informed. And that would be very informative, Jim, but would you tell our listeners one more time the address because they're running to get their pens and their paper. Yes, I know, I in fact, know. I hear I the paper right now. There's the paper. Go ahead and give the address. I, I can feel psychically uh, thousands of people scurrying across thousands of rooms looking for paper and looking for pencils. And, of course, none of them will ever find paper or pencil, so nobody is going to write in. But one more time, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. Nick Redfern, where do we find more of your writings, and what's your next book going to be about? Um, well, people can find more at nickredfern.com. That's my website. And I do a lot of, most of my writing I do on blogs. So if people link to the website and go to the blog section, I've got blogs and everything from UFOs, Bigfoot, Hollywood Scandal, weird government files, all sorts of things. And I, I try and update most of them at least a couple of times a week, some of them daily. Uh, so that's what yeah, I Nick, I, I've got to say, I, I just read yesterday your contribution to Tim Beckley's book, Mind Control Sex Slaves and the CIA. I, I think that your portion of the book is reasonable, but the book itself is not reasonable. But anyway. <laughs> I like Tim's books. I do a lot of writing. 
writing for Tim's books, and he, you know, he puts out some interesting and some funny and wacky titles, and some really hard to find ones as well. You know what I mean? That um, that people are looking for for years, and then they'll pop up through Tim. So it's a, which I think. Oh is a yeah. Good thing. yeah. And I we've like all known Tim Beckley for three or four hundred years. I've known Jim Mosley most of my life, which is a good thing. And we're happy Jim is still here to regale us with stories of the past, present, and future. Jim Mosley, thank you so much for joining us on the Paracast. Well, thank you for having me, and I am going to hang up at this time. You don't have to hang up. Just stay where you are for a second. All right. Nick Redfern, welcome aboard to the Paracast family. We look forward to having you back real soon now. Well, thanks, Gene, and had a, had a good time. Thank you. The gold standard of paranormal radio is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. <laughs>